morning, everyone. You're listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My name is Kate Copsey, and I am the host of the show. You can contact me from my webpage, katecopsey.com, or through America's Web Radio Station site. This morning, we are going to talk with Vincent Simeone, author of Grow More With Less. Good morning, Vincent. Good morning. Yes, and your book is all about sustainable landscape ideas. So let's start with what exactly you mean by sustainable landscapes uh, and what makes one landscape maybe more sustainable than another one? Well, I, I think when we talk about sustainable landscapes and sustainability is sort of a new buzzword out in the garden world, and I think really it's about um, sort of less than traditional in that less chemicals, less uh, maintenance, more nature, and less less humans. So, uh, you, you know, you want to recycle more and do more composting, less chemical fertilizers, less use of pesticides, more water conservation, um, and planting native plants and, and in concert with some of the more exotic plants. But really just allowing your garden to be more naturalistic and less cultivated. And, and that's supposed to be less work, right? <laughs> right, right. I mean, for, for instance, um, you know, as you know, the, the, American, the traditional American lawn is very high maintenance. And we cut it very short, and we water it constantly, and we fertilize it constantly. And so that's not very sustainable. So we're trying to really get the word out there that maybe there's a different way to, to, to maintain your lawn. Maybe you can raise your mower deck and, and not mow it so tight, you know, not mow it so low. It'll be better for the lawn, it'll be a thicker lawn, and it will be more um, resistant to drought and pests. So that's just one of many examples of being more sustainable. Okay. And I I know that um, there's obviously been a movement um, that indicates maybe the the obsession with lawns is maybe being rethought about. And people are kind of uh, ripping them out to put veggie plants and landscape plants. And so that's all. Is that part of maybe... Um, this same sustainable idea, which seems to have uh, maybe caught on a little bit. Yes, I think so. And I think, you know, lawns do have a place, they do have a function, but I think we've gone a little too far. And I think that, you know, maybe taking out some of that lawn and putting in low-maintenance ground covers or putting in vegetables or putting in raised beds with a combination of vegetables and annuals uh, isn't a bad idea because it'll, it'll definitely be more sustainable, easier to maintain, and better for the environment, I think. But but you're not so totally on board, maybe, with people ripping out the whole lot. Um, oh, you know, I have no problem with that yeah, at all, especially yeah. if it's a very small. Yeah, because, because I do it's think it's yeah, absolutely. yeah, and I th- I think they're great for kids to romp over, particularly youngsters. I think they need somewhere outside to to just run run around. But I you yep, know absolutely yes absolutely. yeah, and I, but I do know some people that um, you know particularly with the front yards, um, you know they start with maybe a little bed in one side, and then the bed keeps increasing and increasing and increasing and the lawn goes down and down and down and i think that's a great great way of um maybe doing your landscape yeah and there's nothing wrong with that i think that starting off small and then expanding as you as you have the resources is great i think if i know many people have small lawns and they take the lawn out completely and they have literally what's called a lawnless garden where they have many other things in the garden except for a lawn but 
if you have a very expansive lawn and you want to reduce it in size, there's nothing wrong with that either. And I know um, a, a large number of people, particularly in um, suburbia, where you've maybe got two, two parents working or, you know, just busy households running around, uh, they use lawn services. So does that um, hinder or help getting towards a, a sustainable landscape when, when these services are, are so, shall we say, handy and they're, they're available and you're getting flyers all the time to say that that's going to be an, an easy way of keeping it under control. Well, yeah, I think that you know, I, I would say that if you're gonna, if you're if you're set on having a lawn and you want a lawn, let it leave it up to a professional, you know, and have a professional landscape, a, a landscape professional take care of the lawn. And you can also, you know, say to the professional, you know, I'd like it uh, looking a certain way, or I'd like maybe I'd like it to be more sustainable. I don't want to use as many chemicals, and I'm sure they would oblige. But if you're going to have a lawn, I think leaving it up to a professional and hiring a professional is the way to go. Just like you would. If you were doing pruning on your trees, you would hire a professional arborist for that. And if you're going to have a nice lawn, I think it's probably better to leave it up to a professional. And, and I think that there have been um, an increasing number of companies that do offer an organic option yes. for oh, lawns. Oh, absolutely, and that's a good point. I think many, many companies now are doing that. They sort of are evolving with the times, and that's a great thing. They're keeping current, and they do offer organic uh, methods, and they do offer you know, ways of, of controlling pests without using chemicals necessarily. So I think that that's a, that's a new wave in itself, and uh, there's nothing wrong with that at all. And I, I think the, the times that I, that I have used those, those options, they, they, they seem a little cautious about, you know, where, where, like maybe people are expecting the, the, the golf putting green to come out of it without the single violet or something like that. Right. And they right. seem to spend a lot of time maybe clarifying that maybe that's not going to happen. Um, but, right. it, yeah. Um, well, it, I, and I do want to make it clear that sustainability is all about compromise. It's all about you, you have to be willing to sacrifice maybe not having a perfectly weedless garden. There are going to be some weeds. There are going to be some dandelions maybe in the lawn. But there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. I think that, um, you know, I always tell people, if you want to see a perfect lawn, go to a golf course. <laughs> That's where you'll see a perfect lawn. You yeah. know, I think if you want to have a, gar a lawn in your garden, you have to expect less than golf course quality. And I, I think, actually, if you, if you go kind of to public um, gardens and things like that, um, they, they tend not to be, um, well, particularly the, the historic ones and, and larger properties, they don't look like golf greens. They're, they're more kind oh, no, of what I would no, call no. field grass. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I work for a public garden. I can tell you that the sustainability movement has got into the, bot the botanical garden world, and it's really all about the collections. It's all about the trees and the shrubs and the greenhouse collections. It's less about the lawn because um, you really have to focus on the collections that are very valuable. Yeah. Um, but another area that I think um, probably that we're going to address in the, in the next segment in a little more um, detail is that of insect controls and fungal controls and, and that type of treatment. Um, so what happened maybe um, that society maybe made us think that, that just anything that's crawling over a vegetable or planting uh, in general should die for the plant to be healthy. Well, that's not necessarily true at all. I think uh, you know, the, the term that I'm sure you know and many people know is integrated pest management. And it's important to think about that and think about, there's, there's, unfortunately, there's a lot of harmful pests out there, but there's also a lot of beneficials and a lot of good guys. And a lot of times when you use a a broad-spectrum pesticide on your plants, 
you're killing the beneficials as well as you are the bad guys. And very often, the, if, if you have a sustainable landscape and if you have a, a healthy landscape, those beneficials are keeping those bad guys in check. So you may not want to go right, right to a conventional pesticide. You may want to let nature, literally let nature take its course. And I know that uh, lady beetles and, and many, many beneficial insects do a, a great job of controlling a wide variety of insects. So, um, so I think it's important to, to monitor closely, monitor your plants closely. And just because something's crawling on them, find out exactly what's crawling on them. And if, if you have a few aphids or a few, a few insects in the, in the landscape, maybe, that's, maybe you don't want to do anything. Maybe you just want to wait and see what happens. But if you have a large infestation of something, then maybe you want to take some, some course of action. But uh, it's important to monitor your landscape very closely, I think, in, in, if you want to be effective in integrated pest management. Oh, I, th- I think so. And, you know, and I know there's um, a lot of, particularly the sum- summer vegetables, they, they need pollinators. Um, and I've heard about bees kind of being transported across the continent to pollinate um, almonds in California and things like that. Um, but in the average back garden, um, can we attract pollinators to the vegetable garden? Is there room usually to be able to do both um, the flowers and the vegetables in a sustainable landscape? Absolutely, and what people don't realize is um, a lot of people don't realize that honeybees, although they do a great job pollinating, they're not native to America, North America, and that they do a great job pollinating, but there's a lot of native bees like bumblebees and minor bees and things like that that will actually pollinate earlier in the season. And the best way to attract any pollinator into the garden is, I think, to incorporate certain types of flowers and certain types of herbs and certain types of uh, with certain types of vegetables so that there's a wide variety of selection for these pollinators to be attracted to your garden. So um, there's many flowers that can be incorporated into your landscape with your vegetables in order to have a wide palette, a wide menu, if you will, for these pollinators. And I, I think it, it really does help, um, you know, when, when, when you've got a few flower, flowers in the, in the, the veggie garden area. Um, a lot of them, though, are like, for instance, um, the dill family and the parsley family, they're specific for specific um, uh, butterflies. And, and, the, yeah. um, and one of the things that I, that I found is that people seem to have this disconnect um, they, 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 from school, they, they taught that, um, you know, the egg go, goes into a larva and then you get the, um, the caterpillar, which then produces the, uh, the butterfly. They want the butterfly, but they don't want to tolerate the caterpillar. How do you, how do you get that across? <laughs> That's very true. And it's funny because uh, in part of the book describes some, some good plants to be planted in the garden for pollinators. One of them happens to be milkweed or Asclepius tuberosa. And that's a plant that both the flowers are, the nectar is uh, a, a, a good food source for the adult butterfly, but the leaves are actually a good food source for the caterpillar. So you have to be willing to understand that the caterpillars have to feed, they have to feed on something, and milkweed is one of many you know, plants they can feed on, and then eventually they're going to become the, cat, the, um, the butterfly. But you're going to have to have some tolerance to some chewed leaves, otherwise the caterpillars won't survive, and then of course they won't turn into adult butterflies. But that's part of the tolerance I'm talking about and sort of that compromise is you have to have some of that because in a truly sustainable landscape, there's going to be caterpillars and they're going to eventually turn to, into butterflies. So that's a very, very good point that we have to be willing to, to you know, have that give and take. Yeah, and you know, I say there, there, there was that disconnect that I that I found people don't like the caterpillars, um, and and a few of them are 
they like I mean I, I had milkweed when we were in uh, one of our previous locations and that actually self-seeded something horribly and, and really? became, became actually a pest in the garden I I, 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 I I mean I hated I was ripping it out but it was right in front of a window and you know right. they, they so that was kind of one of the um, I guess one of the Compromises. I mean, is that common that the ones that the butterflies like and the caterpillars like, they do self-seed and become a nuisance in some situations? No, that's not very common at all. I mean, I've, I've heard it happen, but it's certainly not uh, the norm by any means. And I think that's uh, the, the other point is it's uh, a truly sustainable landscape, and I think that some of the healthiest landscapes I've seen are very diverse. There's a lot of different things going on. and a lot of different plants that are coexisting together, and um, all of that is it's sort of like one big cycle. You, you, you know, you want to have diversity in a landscape, which is going to be very healthy. Yeah, and I think, you know, when things do start uh, self-seeding, it becomes kind of um, a little bit of a, a nuisance. But, you know, we have to go for our first commercial break here. But, everyone, we will be back talking more about sustainable landscapes with Vincent Simeon uh, on America's homegrown veggies. And we will be back in just a moment. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot Conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. Remember, you can catch up with us on Facebook at America's Homegrown Veggies. And if you miss any shows, you can find them on AmericasWebRadio.com webpage. And you can find them on iTunes and Stitches. And if you've got a, an iPhone or something like that, there is an app that uh, just put America's Web Radio in, press the app, and 10 o'clock, you will hear us every week. And this morning, we are talking with Vincent Simeon. Uh, about sustainable landscape ideas and one that we talked about just briefly in the previous seg segment um, 
is bug controls and mold controls for the vegetable gar- gardener and every other gardener. So let's talk a little about um, integrated pest management, um, Vincent, um, IPM. Yeah. Um, so what are the main, what would you say are the main elements of um, starting with IPM? What, what are the things that people should focus on at the beginning? Well, certainly the, the main basis of integrated pest management is integrating different forms of pest control to effectively control pest populations. It's not going to the, the, the toolbox right away and trying to get a pesticide to control a pest just because you see maybe a few bugs flying around. So it's having a little more control and, and maybe monitoring your landscape very closely and then, you know, maybe you're not going to use chemicals. Maybe you're going to use beneficial insects or maybe you're going to use a horticultural soap or maybe you're not going to use any chemical at all and you have a, a, a house plant that's got some mealybugs on it and you're going to take a Q-tip with some alcohol and rub them off by hand. So it's really, you know, in the, we have a greenhouse where I work, and, and a lot of times there's scale or, or aphids climbing on the, on the plants, and what we do is we hose it down with, a, with, with a water. And so that's a form of IPM. It's, it's mechanically controlling the pests without even using chemicals. So it's important to think about all the different ways you can control pests, not just using chemicals necessarily, although chemicals are an option and they're usually a last resort if you have to use them. And then if you're going to use a chemical, you're trying to use the safest chemical possible that's the least toxic to humans and pets and, and, and many other things. So that's really the, the basis of IPM. And it's also about um, uh, creating a, a, a healthy environment in your garden, whether it's vegetables or flowers or, or trees, so that, again, beneficial insects will thrive, birds will thrive, all of those will control harmful pest problems. And I think there's a lot that, um, you know, people can actually do um, in the garden. But I think one of the most critical things is identif- identification of what you've got. Absolutely. Uh, uh, and and, and where it, whereabouts it is in its life stage. Yes. Yep. For instance, the, the um, um, crawler life stage or the, the, the crawler um, uh, larvae of the... Um, Lady beetle uh, is very a very ominous looking creature. It looks like something that could really hurt you, and it's perfectly harmless and it's perfectly beneficial. And it's it's controlling insects as a crawler, but many people think you know it's a bad insect that should be that should be uh, eradicated. and It's not. So um, you should you should know the different life stages of certain insects like lady beetles and make sure you're not killing them when they sh- you should be you know keeping them alive and keeping them healthy and thriving. Yeah, and as I say, I, th- I think, uh, you know, and, and of course, smaller things are easier to control than when they get into big uh, lava-type things. Yeah, or yeah. large numbers, for yeah. that matter. Um, so, so when you we're talking about vegetables, though, um, I mean, we really don't even want one, let alone a bunch of worms, inside the cabbage or the peach. Um, yeah. you, you'd really want a zero tolerance. Is there a way maybe that you can um, do that um, with, with the, the IPM, I mean, do we have to pro- do a prevention-type thing or, or active remedy? What would we do? Well, I think definitely, again, monitoring is very important to make, make sure you check your plants regularly. And, you know I, know, I know friends of mine who do a lot of vegetable gardening who literally will go out there every single day and they'll inspect their plants. And if need be, they'll actually um, pull, the plant, pull the insects off their plants and put them into a bag or put them into a jar and harvest the, the insects, you know, daily, basically, and get rid of them that way rather than uh, using chemicals. Now, obviously, if, if, if a chemical has to be used, then they, they'll use it, and then they'll, again, keep a very close eye on how, how the, 
the insects have reacted to that and that kind of thing. But um, I think the main thing is if you're going to employ IPM into a vegetable garden, it's it's all about having constant control and constant monitoring of your plants to know what's going on and um, making sure that, obviously, a, as you said, a population of insects doesn't get out of control where it, it destroys your, your crop. And certainly in, in the case of vegetables, you don't want any insects that are going to be, you know, boring into your fruit or, or you know, chewing up your, your, your leaves. So it's, it's even more important, I think, on vegetables than any other crop to make sure that you keep a close eye on your, on your crop uh, daily. Yeah, and and in fact, I got an email I think this morning from from uh, one of the online nurseries that said it's time for dormant oils. Now, apart from the fact that we've just gone through a major snowstorm, um, and I'm wearing very frigid temp- air temperatures, um, that's gen- generally used as a preventative. How does that actually work um, as a well, preventative? Uh, horticultural horticultural oils and, and and horticultural soaps tend to. They're they're either fatty uh, the fatty acids or or uh, uh, an oil type based product, but they basically suffocate the insect. That's what they basically do. They, they basically cause it to uh, suffocate. Um, and even though it doesn't kill them right away, it does kill them uh, shortly after. It, you know, it's a contact spray basically. So it's important if you're going to use a horticultural oil or soap to get good coverage. You want to make sure that you're not just spritzing your plant. That you're really getting good coverage. I would absolutely make sure that you read the label of whatever you're using to make sure that your horticultural oils or your soaps can be used on the particular vegetables that you are trying to trying to treat. And as long as the label says, yes, you can spray it on cucumbers or, yes, you can spray it on eggplant, then that's fine. But you want to make sure that you read the label first. And then uh, you want to make sure you get good coverage. And basically those types of products will suffocate uh, insects. Now, again, they will suffocate all insects. So... A beneficial insect, if it, if it hits a butterfly or a, or um, a lady beetle larvae, it's going to probably kill them too. But that's why you want to be very specific. If you have a an infestation of aphids on your um, uh, vegetables, you want to make sure that you just treat those aphids. And so, so the the, the dormant oils, um, I, I guess that that's um, some something that you put on in before any of this activity arrives, or does it kill borers and things like that that might have started at the end of last year and bore into maybe a tree, one of the fruit trees, for instance? No, not so much borers. Borers would be more uh, much harder to control. They, they're usually not a contact; they're more of a systemic type uh, chemical. But in the case of scale or in the case of any kind of crawling insect that you can actually spray onto or, you know, cover, that's really where the, the dormant oils, dormant oils are used a lot on scale, for instance, because scales don't move, they're, they're, they're stationary, and you can, you can use it at the time when the plant's dormant and control the pest. Anything like a borer or something that's, that's boring into, or a leaf miner, for instance, um, that's going to take a whole different type of, of chemical to control them. And you may not have a choice. If, if you want to control the borers, if you want to control, you know, leaf miners or something like that, you may not have a choice but to use a certain type of chemical. If you, you know, there may not be any, any um, more organic methods of, of controlling it. So you have to sort of uh, play that by ear. Yeah, and uh, you know, I, and I, I would imagine it depends also where, whether it's on a tree or where, whether it's kind of the squash plant. Um, yeah, or, absolutely. Yeah. It depends on what what it's on as well. Sure. Yeah. But dormant oil itself is normally used, obviously, when the plant is dormant, and it's normally used on on trees and shrubs and and, and things like that. Okay, um, and another thing that. Um, 
I guess it affects a lot of plants, um, whether it be roses or squash or whatever. Are the the molds and the fungus issues, particularly in humid summers, um, is there a way way that IPM can deal with that and and address that type of thing? Well, I think there are a couple of things you can do. Certainly in in the case of that, I think cultural, um, cultural practices is very important. First of all, with molds and fungi and things like that, normally those things are, are worsened by um, low light or low air circulation where you have very closed areas where there's not a lot of air circulation. And then those, those fungal problems just sort of uh, breed and, and escalate. So what I would tell people is that they want to make sure they're, they're sort of, uh, you know, regularly pruning and, the, and their, 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 their landscape is nice and light and airy especially in humid climates where, you know, that humidity could just sit there and really cause major insect problems or, or fungal problems, rather, uh, in the landscape. So you want to have air circulation in your garden. You want to have as much light on certain areas of the garden as you can. Um, if it's a shade-loving garden, then that's a, a totally different story. But usually with um, perennials and, and vegetables and, and a, lot, a lot of trees and shrubs, they want a little more sunlight. So um, you want to make sure you have good, good uh, light, good air circulation, which will really sort of um, cause a lot of those fungal problems to, to disappear. Not all of them, obviously, but that's the first, the first step. The second step, I would say, is sanitation is very important. So if you have a plant that's got leaves that are diseased and they drop on the ground, you probably want to clean those up as, as much as possible and get rid of them so that, you know, a lot of times you'll have these, these diseases that will get even worse by having that leaf litter that's all diseased or even overwinter. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of times you'll see uh, diseases that will overwinter in that leaf litter. So you want to be as clean and sanitary in the garden as you can as well. Yeah, and, and not be afraid of taking off an in, um, sort of if something has got mold, um, you know, just to snip, sure. it, snip it off, um, which is yep, fairly simple. Snip it off with a, with a shear yeah. and, and get yeah. rid of it, absolutely. Yeah, and, and another form of IPM, which I've, I've only recently, I guess, um, come across, which you mention in the book, is an IPM as, as far as a, an in, uh, sorry, a weed control. Um, I, I mean, I've got a major issue with not Japanese knotweed, which I swear somebody planted on purpose, um, inv- uh, yeah. but invasive roses, uh, poison ivy, honeysuckle, and whatever. Um, I, and it's all really where I want my raised bed, so I've got had it chopped down. But is there a really efficient way of controlling something that's out so out of control and overgrown with these invasives? Well, with something like that, what we normally do is when it gets to that point, we actually have to go in and mechanically or physically remove, you know, cut them down or take a mower to them and cut the cut the the invasives down to get them under control. And then once they're under control, once they're cut down, then you can either, you know, tear out the roots or you can, uh, you know, uh, eradicate them in some, in some way. A lot of times we'll go in and cut down an area and put down a heavy layer of mulch. And the mulch will sort of suppress the, the growth of those invasives and sort of give you some time to, to get them under control. Um, or, as you said, build a, a raised planter or a raised bed or something like that afterwards. But, uh, mechanical or physical control is a, is a good non-chemical way of trying to control invasives, at least on the short term, so you can at least manage them and get them under control before you decide what the next step is. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, I've try, tried to stay away from um, the, the chemical side, but when you have such a large amount of these things and they've been growing for so many years, yep. it's really difficult to get the, all those roots out. Well, and the other option, though, is to cut them down, 
and wait until they start to come up again and then hit them with a chemical, which now, again, IPM doesn't mean abolishing the use of chemicals. It just means using them wisely. And so uh, what you're doing is you're getting the plant, the, the invasives under control, then as they come up again, you're hitting them with a chemical, and normally that will kill them because they're already in shock by cutting them down. So that's an efficient use of pesticides, though, because you're, you're going to probably kill them the first time out because they're coming up and you're going to hit them right away when they're young and fleshy growth. Yeah. Well, we, so, we, again, that's part uh, of the management process. Yeah, uh, we can but hope. <laughs> this is our first yeah. year. But, you know, we need yep. to take another quick commercial break here, but I want to remind you, you're listening to America's Homegrown Veggies, and when we come back, we'll be talking more about sustainable landscapes and we'll be talking about some of the water issues. With Vincent Simeon, we'll be back in just a moment. This is Cheryl Linker, host of the Master Gardener Hour on America's Web Radio, Saturday morning at 11 o'clock. Join us as we keep things fun and interesting as we educate you in the world of master gardening. Membership. Are you an IHC member? Access to the Institute for Healthcare Consumerism's breaking news, industry trends, expert blogs, and networking with IHC's industry-wide member community. IHC membership puts you at the focal point of the dynamic health and benefit industry, allowing you to join the conversation and collaborate with industry stakeholders and your peers. Your IHC membership includes a subscription to Healthcare Consumerism Solutions Magazine, Healthcare Exchange Solutions Magazine, Annual Publications Healthcare Solutions Superstars, and Healthcare Solutions Outlook a free white paper, and much more. Sign up as a free IHC member or $99 premium IHC member today at www.theihcc.com. That's www.theihcc.com. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. You're back listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I am the host of the show, Kate Copsey, and this morning we are talking with Vincent Simeon about sustainable landscape solutions. And we've covered some of the issues that face gardeners around the country. So let's talk. turn to another one of the biggies for most gardeners, whether they're in the south or the west coast and many other areas, and that's drought and water issues. Um, I, I, there are probably two ways of, of dealing with, with this. One, one is conserving, I guess, what you use, and the other is collection of water. Um, so let's take the first one, Vincent, um, and, and talk about some of the ways of conserving water for or in a hot, dry summer. Um, what are some of the things that we can do? Well, certainly the first place to start is I, I, many of the observations I see and many of the things I see in the landscape is um, gardeners and, and more so homeowners that are improperly watering. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I see e- irrigation systems that go on automatically, and a lot of times they're running during a rainstorm, which is a waste <laughs> of water. Or I see them go on for a half hour a day every single day. 
And what that does is basically it sort of it sort of syringes the landscape. It sort of gives it a little teaser of water, but it doesn't water deeply. You get a very very um, you know maybe the top inch of of, of uh, soil is going to get wet, but the 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 um, deeper soil is not going to get wet. And what that does is encourage a very shallow root system on either grass or shrubs or perennials or anything really, and you never really get a deep root system on your plants. And so it's really in the long run a waste of water because you're never really getting deep into the roots. The roots are going to be very shallow looking for that water. Um, I would recommend that uh, you water less frequently but for longer periods of time. So, for instance, maybe watering twice a week for an hour or two so you get a nice deep, deep watering whether you have, you know, if you have heavier soil, maybe less. But if you have a, a well-drained soil, then that's probably okay. And you're, what's going to happen is you're going to now encourage a very deep watering where the root system of your plants is going to go deeper. And they'll be more um, uh, tolerant and adaptable to drought situations because they'll have the root system to, to, to sustain themselves. And in the long run, that will probably save water. So that's one good way, I think, is to properly water your landscape. Don't overwater it. Don't underwater it. But make sure you're watering it evenly and for longer periods of time, less often. And, you know, I certainly down in the south, they, 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 um, people used to say you could you overwatered and you're more likely to kill things from overwatering yeah. than the drought yep. ever would. Um, yep. and, and, but I, I think another thing, of course, is picking the, the, the right plants and maybe clumping them together so that your vegetables are all together and may, maybe your drought-resistant um, perennials are, are maybe a little further away so that you're not watering the two together. Well, absolutely, and I think that's one of the other things is, the, you know, the right plants for the right place. I think putting all your sun-loving plants that, that like very similar soil in one, one area, putting plants that maybe like a little bit of shade, like heavier soil in one area, putting things that like to grow together together makes the most sense. I mean, if you look at nature and what happens in nature, you know, obviously in nature plants are growing together for a reason, and that's extremely important, I think, you can have a diverse landscape. You can have a landscape that has a lot of different plants, but you have to make sure you plant it well where the sun lovers are with the sun lovers and the shade lovers are with the shade lovers and things are together because if you mix apples and oranges, no pun intended, but if you mix apples and oranges, a lot of times you're not going to have the success you would if you put apples with apples and oranges with oranges. Yeah, um, and I, I think another tip would be if you've got a very long driveway, don't put the ones that uh, need a lot of water right at the other end. Been there, right. done that. <laughs> right, absolutely. That's you know. So a lot of this is common sense. A lot of this is maybe in in the spring before you start planting, uh, or before you maybe change your landscape. If you want to, if you want to amend your landscape, maybe you know, take a, an evaluation of your landscape and look and see where the light hits and how much light you have in certain areas. What kind of soil do you have in certain areas? So then you can site plants better where they should be put, rather than trying to change the landscape, trying to change the soil for what plants you think should go there. Oh, okay. Um, and, of course, then there's um, rain barrels, which are a way of collecting water. Um, can they really make um, a, a difference in, in a, a home landscape? Do you have to have multiple ones of them to really make a difference? Well, the first thing I would, I would tell uh, any gardener is if you're going to collect rainwater, please do check with your local uh, ordinances. There are, there are local ordinances, depending on the state, depending on the village even, there, there may be restrictions on collecting rainwater, but I would say in, in most cases, in most communities, you are allowed to collect rainwater, but I would definitely check your local ordinances on that and check your local water authority, for instance. Uh, but basically, yes, there are rain barrels that you can purchase or you can even make that would 
we put on the uh, the end of a downspout or a leader on your house, and as it rains, of course, the the water would fill up the barrel, and there are little spigots or little um, you know hose attachments at the bottom of the barrel where you can collect the rainwater and then use it at a later date for watering vegetables or watering flowers or watering you know shrubs or whatever it is house plants for instance and they they come in all different sizes you can get smaller ones you can get 50 gallon ones you can get 30 gallon ones uh some of them are actually quite interesting quite unusual they they kind of can go with the motif of your house so they're very interesting the way they're made um but it's a great way to because as you said you want to have water when you need it not when you know if it's a if it's a hot dry summer and you can't, you open up the, the, the spigot and there's nothing coming out and you can't water because you have water restrictions, then it's not going to do you any good. So collecting rainwater is a way to collect it and hold it for when you need it later on. So it's, it's yeah. a way to sort of take some of the pressure off the use of, of city water or domestic water, and it's a way to sort of recycle. It's, it's also a way to recycle. So it's a, it's a great way to, you know, and as long as you're not doing it on a, on a very large scale, uh, although they do sell cisterns and bigger systems that can be used, um, it's a, it's a great way to conserve water and use it when you need it. The the, the one restriction though that I that I I, I tried um, I tried to run a I guess a, a, a soaker hose from a rain barrel and failed miserably. I wanted it to go go along some newly planted strawberries or something like that. Is yep. there a trick to getting rain barrels to deliver through a soaker hose, or is it, are you just restricted to opening the spigot and putting it into a bucket? Yeah, I mean, soaker hoses tend to need a little pressure behind them to really make them work effectively, and, and you know, they, they're they so restricted as, as it is because they have those tiny little weep holes that I don't know if a rain barrel, at least a rain barrel that doesn't have, they're gravity-fed, basically, so... You'd want to have, you'd have to have some kind of motor or some kind of pump that would pump the water out, and that would probably be too time-consuming and too expensive. So they don't work as well, I don't think, with soaker hoses as much as they would with a garden hose, where you're filling up a watering can or something like that. Um, and that's what I would recommend. Now, they, I think you can actually get some kind of a pumping system where there'd be a little pump attached that would pump the water out of the, the rain barrel or the cistern, but um, the average homeowner is probably not going to do that. So. Um, I think as far as, uh, as, far as a, a soaker hose situation, it's probably not going to work as well as it would uh, if you had an actual hose coming from the house. Yeah, and I, I think some people are able to raise them up maybe high enough that they, they do get that, uh, that Yeah, as pressure. long as they can raise yeah. them high enough, you might yeah. get that gravity yeah. that would give you a better distribution. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, my, my vegetable tend to be a little further away from the house now for that to be practical but but let's, but let's address um gray water i know when we were in um atlanta and we were in a major drought um i yeah. was collecting the the water from the shower before i i got in because it took a minute or two for the the hot water to get in and i was using yeah. that that's not the same as gray water per se is it uh no gray water is usually um you know, water that comes, you can collect water from, say, your dishwasher or your washing machine, things like that. Anything other than toilet water, basically, uh, or sewage water, basically. And you could um, conceivably, you know, like you said, you can collect it, recycle it, and then use it for plants. Or use it. Some people like to use it for their lawns. Uh, you can certainly use gray, gray water uh, on your lawn. And it's, you know, as long as, it's, as long as you're not drinking it and you're using it on the lawn, it's fine. There are, again, some restrictions depending on the community, and, again, you'd have to just be advised by your local water authority. But basically, yes, you can um, recycle 
uh, dishwater or sink water, um, and uh, you know, instead of it going down the drain, you can collect it and then use it for plants, use it for your lawn, things like that. And I, but how, how about th- things like the detergents that you you put in, whether it be wash, um, a, a dishwasher or, or a clothes washer, or, or even in the sink? Can they hurt the um, the lawns and things? Normally, the detergents that are on the market today are, are much safer than they used to be, and they're much less, much more diluted than they used to be. But certainly, uh, with gray water, um, you have to be careful. And, and there is, um, in the book, I talk a little bit about that, about what kind of dilution rate you should have and how much you can actually put out at one time. So you have to do it in smaller spurts uh, where you don't put it all out in one concentrated effort. You have to sort of use it slowly. Uh, because you don't want to have that chemical buildup in the in the lawn or in the soil. So there are, there are sort of um, guidelines that people should follow up with and just know about before they use gray water. It's not a, it's not just a question of taking your, your dish water and then putting it outside. You probably want to do a little more research before you actually use it. Okay, um, and of course you don't uh, want those harmful chemicals to, to yeah. hurt you. Oh your yeah, well yes, plants. yeah. And of course uh, another very simple thing that people can do, which is kind of the recycling bit too, is a, is a compost um, to put yeah. on the soil. Um, and that's something that every every gardener, I think, should have a, a compost pile somewhere. Would you agree? Absolutely, and especially if you're going to be a vegetable gardener, that that's sort of like a, a prerequisite. I think. I think that. Compost is a great way to feed your garden naturally. Uh, it's a great way to to reuse, you know, uh, reusing those raw materials from your kitchen, you know, whether it be leafy materials or or coffee grinds or whatever it is that you that you recycle, or you know, yard waste, uh, leaves and and branches that you may maybe shred up. And instead of them going out for the garbage, you know, that's that's free fertilizer you could turn into fertilizer at some point to use in your garden and. Um, it's a great way to, to, to be sustainable. To, you know, everyone should have a compost pile as far as I'm concerned. Of course, it, compost, composting is a lot of work. I mean, it's, it's a, it really is a, 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 a science, I think. And you have to have the right combination and you have to turn it regularly and you have to have the right conditions. But if it's done properly, I think it could be a great addition and a great asset to any gardener. I, I kind of cheat at composting. I, I kind of throw it directly into um, the garden bed. Um, I've got one that I that I make, and I've got leaves at the bottom, and then I think I put some wood ash on on top, uh, just light lightly to clear out out from a fire. Um, and that now now I'm putting the vegetable clippings on top of that, and then I'll just put right. compost and peat moss and whatever's on top of that. It's kind of so the you're la- layering, basically. Yeah. Uh, right. De- definitely the lazy way of, of uh, composting because you don't need to turn that. <laughs> no, no, that, that's one way of doing it. Layering, you don't really have to. You don't have to turn. But um, it, I think, no matter how you look at it, I don't, I don't know that I agree with it, that it's lazy. I think you're doing you're doing it the right way. You're just doing it a different way. And it, composting is is takes some time and some knowledge before you can master it. Really. Yeah, um, but anyway, I think we need to take our, our uh, final commercial break here. Um, but come back, everyone, and uh, listen to more about Vincent Simeon and how his book, How to Grow More with Less, after these messages. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley. 
every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. Certification. Do you know why becoming a certified healthcare consumerism specialist is more important than ever in 2014? Adding this specialized designation to your credentials tells employers or your clients that you understand how much our industry has changed and how to navigate that change successfully. IHC University's certification program offers coursework both online and live at their biannual forum conference series, and testing is completed online. Reaffirm your position as a leader in the health and benefit management industry. Download our certification overview and learn more at www.theihcc.com. That's www.theihcc.com. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. I hope you're enjoying America's homegrown veggie show this morning. We have been talking with Vincent Simeon about sustainable gardening techniques um, from the whole garden as well as vegetables, I guess, in the garden. And Vincent, your latest book is called Grow More with Less, Sustainable Garden Methods with Less Water, Less Work and Less Money, which sounds like everybody should be interested in this. So is the book actually on the shelves already? Yes, the book is on the shelves, and it, it came out several weeks ago. Oh, okay. And it can be found on Amazon as well as local bookstores and Barnes & Noble? Yes, yes, Amazon would be a good a good choice. Um, I'm sure there are other several uh, other websites that are, you can find that, but it's also in local area retail stores as well. If you go to your re- retailer, I'm sure they can order it for you. Okay. Um, and it came out just before Christmas, right? It did, it did. Yeah, great timing. Um, And and do you have um, a website where people can maybe see pictures from the book or or a blog or something like that? Yes, if you go to vincentsimeone.com or you can just Google my name, Vincent Simeone, and my my website will come up. I'm also on Facebook. Oh, okay. And and you talk about about different aspects of the, the book on that? Yes, on on my website I actually have a lot of information on a lot of different topics, uh, and there's actually um, um, plant lists and different information you can download from my website. And on the on the, the front page, on the home page, there is some information about the book, and there's a, there's a cover a picture of the cover of the book. Uh, on my Facebook page, I have a lot of information as well uh, on the book as well, and um, um, a, a lecture series that I am doing that's sort of based around this book. Oh, great. Um, and, and if they wanted um, a signed copy of the book, can they get it directly from your website, or would it be better to go to one of your talks? Uh, it would be better to go, go to one of my talks, yes. Okay. And, and are, are the um, dates and, and topics of your talks and locations on the website or, or somewhere? Uh, I am just actually putting that schedule together now. So for the next year or so, I'm, I'm actually booking 
uh, lectures throughout the country. So I will definitely have those up on my website fairly soon. Oh, so so it's not just the East Coast that you're going to be presenting this topic? No, I'll, I'll be just about everywhere, I think, this year. And mostly East Coast, uh, but some uh, Midwest and some West Coast as well. Oh, that sounds great fun. Um, and are, are you going to be at the big home shows type, type things, or, or is it more garden club type areas? Uh, yes, uh, uh, garden shows, flower shows, um, um, uh, um, lectures to garden clubs and plant societies, uh, lectures to professionals. So it's a wide variety of audience. Oh, that sounds fun. Um, so, so people can see you almost uh, anyway. And if somebody wanted to, uh, either they have a question um, about um, this whole sustainable thing or they want to maybe invite you to do a presentation or lecture to their, their group, is there a way on their, your website that they can contact you? Well, and that's a, that's a great point. Actually, on my website is my email address. And if anyone wants to know where I'm lecturing, and want a copy of my schedule, or if they want to book me for the lecture or, or, or just ask a garden question, they can just go on my website and get my, my uh, email address from there. It is uh, vasimeone at aol.com, but again, they can get that off my website. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, if, if, they, if they did want to maybe, maybe uh, contact you with, with a question, would that be best going through Facebook um, rather than a, a Going, going through the web page and, and con- direct contact? Um, the two, two best ways to, to ask a garden question would either be my Facebook page or my email address. And, and what type of things do you, do you discuss on your, on your Facebook? Do you, do you actually have a blog as well, or is it mainly the Facebook part? No, it's mainly the Facebook page. Um, I get all kinds of questions about uh, – I just had someone um, um, contact me about uh, – they, they live in Michigan. They had some questions about street trees and what, what's a good hardy street tree for their climate – I've had people ask me a lot of pruning questions and how it relates to creating a healthy garden. I've had people um, contact me about what particular native plants they could use in their area that are very sustainable. So a wide variety of questions, and I'll take all comers, as they say. Oh, wow, because you've, you've, you've got a, a lot of experience, um, I, I, I guess, uh, in, in gardening from I, – I believe I read that you did a degree down, down in Athens, Georgia. Was that right? Right. I have a, I have a degree from – a. A, a local college, SUNY Farmingdale. I have a, 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 a four-year bachelor's degree from the University of Georgia in Athens, and I have a master's degree from C.W. Post, Long Island University. Oh, well, so, so you do know the, the southern red soil, uh, Clay. Oh, yes. I, I, grew, <laughs> I, I, I was there for quite a few years, actually, and I have a lot of friends down there still, and, and uh, you know, the southeast is a great place to garden, and they have some challenges with their, with their, with their soils, and certainly the the climate but uh, it's a great climate to garden in oh tell me about it i loved it down down there <laughs> um, yes. so so much that you can grow um but uh, but you you also work at um a historic garden in um in new jersey um can you tell us a little about that and, and if people can see you and uh, sort of find find you there yes actually it's uh, the name of the of the name of the site is planting fields arboretum state historic park it is a former uh, gold coast estate it's uh, in Oyster Bay, New York, on Long Island, and uh, it's a wonderful old estate that is now a state park and is open to the public 364 days a year. So it's a, a wonderful facility with um, rolling lawns, uh, 200 acres of cultivated gardens. We have two and a half acres of greenhouses, and it really is, I think, in my mind, one of the models of sustainability because we have you know, highly cultivated areas that we maintain uh, to, to keep our plant collections pristine, but we also have a lot of naturalistic areas 
uh, native areas that we sort of let go, you know, to nature, and, and it, it uh, supports a wide variety of wildlife. It's, it's really quite a special place. Oh, it's, it sounds wonderful. And, and you say that's on Long Island, right? It is on Long Island in Oyster Bay, New York. Oh, wonderful. You can visit our webpage at plantingfields.org. Dot org, plantingfields.org. Um, right. well, that, that sounds a wonderful place to, to go visit. Um, and do, do you do um, talks at that location as well as uh, on, on, around the country? Uh, all of my talks are off-site, so all of my talks are uh, in other areas uh, other than planting fields. Okay, uh, but people can cert- certainly um, they, they can cert- certainly find, find you there if they wanted to pop in and. Uh... Sure, absolutely. Yeah, yes, absolutely. It's a great place to visit. Uh, it's a four-season garden, so it's a great place to visit any time of the year. Oh, so so it's open all year round. Yes, it is. Oh, I, I bet it looks wonderful in the in the snow. It certainly does. Yep, it's a beautiful time of year to be here. Yeah, um, and how, how about uh, other so- social media? You said you have fa- Facebook. Do you have Twitter and Pinterest and all those other social media things? No, I'm not that advanced yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm starting off slow, so I haven't done Twitter yet, and, and I haven't tweeted anybody yet. So no, I'm, I'm pretty much um, sticking to the, the email and and uh, and Facebook. Okay, um, and so certainly in, in the in the book, I mean there, there are um, just so so many do, different I- ideas from from lawns to, um, to to vegetables and pollinators and things like that. Um, you've got a lot of native grasses in there. Actually, the majority of the, of the grasses I talk about in my book are native, and you know we we know a lot about the ornamental grasses, uh, the Asian species of ornamental grasses, but a lot of people don't know enough about the native grasses, and there's some wonderful native grasses switchgrass and blue stem and sedges that are just wonderful grasses that should be used more. They're very sustainable. They're very good for um, supporting wildlife, and they should really be used more. There are a few grasses in my book that are non-native, but they're non-invasive, and they're also very ornamental. But um, people tend to think of native grasses as sort of, you know, something you'd see out in the prairie or a meadow, and they're not really they should not really meant for for a landscape or a garden, and that's not true. I think many of these plants can be used um, for a garden if used correctly. And and they're not all white blooms. Um, like like there's a pink mooly grass, which I think is absolutely wonderful. Stunning, absolutely a stunning plant. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I always tell my my southern friends I'm very jealous of them because they can grow it um, very well down in the south, and and I, I we grow up here in the northeast, but not quite as well as they do down south. And and you cover trees as well, well as perennials and grasses, right, in the book? Trees and shrubs, ground covers, evergreens, um, herbaceous plants. So we do cover a wide variety of plants in the in the book. And, and of course, there, there is the, the, the hardiness zones and things like that, which uh, yeah. are... Do, do, do you refer to the heat zone map as well as... Um... Yes, that's another very important uh, topic is... Uh, the heat zone map is is part of the equation, and so you, if you look at the hardiness zone map, which has changed, by the way, the hardiness zones have changed uh, by USDA standards. If you look at that, you really have to look at the the heat zone map as well, because again, over the last thirty or some odd years, the the climate's changing in most of the country, and so you have to be prepared for that, and you have to understand where plants will thrive the best. And, 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 of course, where they won't grow. Um, is, exactly. Is, is, yeah. Exactly. And, and I think everybody traditionally thought it was because it was too cold to do this or that. But, in fact, sometimes the, the winters can be just too warm to, yeah. for, for fertilization or, or um, for plhants to really thrive. Like rhubarb will not grow in Georgia, yeah. I don't think. 
Yeah, yeah, that's true. And, and I, I, you know, I think it's it's um, less about uh, uh, global warming and more about climate change in general. I think, you know, in some parts of the country you're seeing it getting cooler, in some parts of the country you're seeing it getting warmer. But it's really about climate change and, and how to uh, how to deal with that as a gardener. Yeah, and, and and maybe thinking a little little more long term. Um, yeah, yeah, um, and and you you have the, those um, those in 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 the book. Is if, if people um, wanted to have a closer look, maybe for the by zip code or something like that, is, is the the hardiness zone and the the heat zone are they online somewhere? Um, well, actually, in the book, I under under each plan, I mention the the hardiness zone. In the book, I mentioned that there's actually a heat zone map as well as the hardiness zone map. But if you go online, uh, if you go to the USDA, I'm sure they would have information on the hardiness zone map. And, and the heat zone, zone map came, came out of the American Horticultural Society, right? Not the, right. That's, yeah. That's right. That's um, right. And that, that, Which that, is another great resource. Um, well, and the other thing in the book is there's a, a list of helpful websites and educational websites and, and uh, mail-order nurseries and things like that that can also be very, a very helpful resource. Oh, great. Um, and, you know, say, and, and you talk about different pruning uh, tools as well, yes. which, um, yep. which is wonderful. Proper pruning, proper planting, proper watering, all those things that go into creating a great garden. And, and this is, after a while, this is going, going to be less work and less money for you, right? Yes, there is an initial investment of time and resources, but the theory is that over time, if you're doing it right, that you should have less of it, uh, of an, you know, you have less involvement, you have more time to, to enjoy the garden. Yeah. Um, well, I guess we're we're pretty much at the end of the the show, Vincent. But thank you for for joining us. You've given me some oh, great ideas. You. Yeah. And, great. And, well, thank you for having me. You're more than welcome. And and the book is Grow More with Less. It's on sale now. Uh, Vincent Simeone on Facebook. Um, and say we're right at the end of the show. But I want to thank everyone for listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show this morning. Um, we will be back next week with another show talking all about growing veggies have a good gardening week everyone and join me back here next saturday